0: You must have heard we're having wine tonight. <laughs> Can we start? Mm-hmm. Doc, let's start. Um, I want to say prayers, but... Um, actually, let's say prayers. Are you ready? Is time coming? Oh. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again, for the gift of our life from you, for your presence with us this day. God, um, can you get that? Um, for, the, for the joy that we know from your risen life, let nothing in our lives, whatever in the way of sins or problems, get in the way of carrying that joy with us through this Easter octave. Um, Thank you Lord for um, the great offering of your life, the ordeal, um, the great suffering that you endured for us. How good it is to know um, how hard it is sometimes because of our awareness of our problems or the faults of other people that um, to keep before us the the goodness of what you have done for us. Um, Help us to um, strengthen our efforts to keep that goodness before it, that we can know a joy, carry that joy, make it real in all that we do. How good you are. Um, I ask a blessing on everybody um, during this Easter season to live in that joy, all of us, carry it, um, not to let other things get in the way. And at the same time, Carry forward all that we began in Lent. Help us to carry our sins gladly, in joy, putting them away, um, always trusting that we will grow closer to you and uh, become more one with each other in doing that. We are grateful for this time together, and we offer all of these prayers in your name, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Tomasa. It's an evening. It's good to see you here. I and you're just coming and going? We'll catch you Friday, I guess. Okay. There's wine. Don't get that on Friday mornings. Let's see, a couple of things. Karen asked about the next work. I'm still I'm still trying to get my way through um, go down Moses, but um, I'm actually glad for the reminder, the next work is Sound and the Fury, um, it's going to be a very, very, very different work and in some ways um, difficult. Um, and I think Go Down Moses is relatively easy to read, Sound and the Fury will present some problems, particularly the first section because it's all told from the perspective of an idiot. We're we're in an idiot who has no sense of sequence or coherence or time. So we're actually experiencing the world as an idiot does. Nobody had ever done that in literature before at Taufel. It's an amazing thing. And one of the great ironies of the book is the, the title is taken from a passage in Macbeth. When we do Sound and the Fury, I'll, I'll read that passage. But it's the Sound and the Fury. It's the meaningless of days. Macbeth is gonna die in that play. And as he's going to his death, he has these lines, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. The the, the days pile on days in a meaningless way. And he says, and the tales of an idiot, told from the perspective of an idiot. And one of the ironies of that book is the opening chapter is is, um, from the perspective of Benji, who is an idiot. And the next three chapters are told from other members of the family. And you have to ask yourself, who's the idiot? The other three people, I'm saying that really seriously, the other th- three people think they're okay. And one of the ironies is, is that so often when we, when we think we're okay and it's other people who have problems, like Oedipus, we discover there's some things wrong with us that we don't see. I mean, you've heard me saying this that over and over again, that one of the values of literature is that it helps us to see ourselves more clearly. So we will do Sound of the Fury next and um, we're either going to take a break and do some short stories or we'll, or we'll do the Snopes trilogy. And if I haven't said this before and I'm not sure that I have, sometime in that period what I would like to do is, is um, have another gathering the way we did last year um, at our house or here for the Winter's Tale movie and watch Faulkner's The Reavers it's a wonderful, wonderful movie. It's delightful. And, and it shouldn't have the problems that Wintersdale had. It should be um, cleaner, clearer. So we'll either do it here or at our house or somewhere. But it's a delightful, it's a delightful movie. It's <laughs> Steve McQueen plays Boone Hagenbeck um, who, as you know from Fire in the Hearth, is one of the characters here and from The Bear, who um, um, secretly steals the, co- the new Ford when it's just come out. It, it marks a revolution because it's the beginning of technology in America with the Ford industry starting and Ford's being, Ford's being produced. Gramps buys a Ford, but Gramps and Grandma are, are, are called off to a funeral, and everybody else is left with strict instructions not to do things they're not supposed to do, so Boone probably takes the car and goes to Memphis to a whorehouse. I should, I should censor this. He goes to a whorehouse to, to meet with this girl that he's really enamored with, but she's a prostitute there. And he has to take this young boy, this nine-year-old boy. So the story is told for the, yeah, right. If we get together, nobody can bring children that night. There's nothing offensive, nothing vulgar, there's no swearing, I mean, it belongs to a better age there's not all the swearing that, that makes up so much of the movies today. Anyway they go there and this young boy Steve McQueen has to watch out for him and protect him and his innocence and I can't tell you what happens but it's one of the best things Faulkner ever did. It was the last work he did and it's, it's interesting because he goes back to a perspective of innocence after all the dark things he shows in so many of his darker works. Anyway I'm thinking that it would be good for us to, towards the end of our time together, to, to finish with that movie, because it really is a delightful movie. That's one, so we're doing Sound and the Fury next. We have to order the books. And the other thing is, um, I'm saying this really seriously. I'm, I'm having a little bit of a problem with the, um, the uh, catechetical aspect of our work together because as we enter the modern world, it's really, these are things I would not have been as, as aware of teaching the class in school, but I am aware of them here. Um, because we have, I feel a strong commitment to the catechetical purposes of the course. <clears throat> as we enter the modern world, we're entering a world that's, that's conceived more in naturalistic terms. We're not in a mythic world anymore, the way we would, were in Homer and Virgil and even in Dante. When we entered Shakespeare plays, we entered the modern world. It's a scientific, in lots of ways, Protestant world. And we've seen that Shakespeare, particularly in in, uh, Moby Dick. And the way the world is rendered is is no longer in mythic terms. It's rendered naturalistically according to the tenets of science, the way things appear to our senses. And at some point in the modern world, as you all know, it's believed that God is dead. There is no longer a creator in the universe. The universe is on its own. It's explained by other terms, a black hole and whatever other theories explain it. So it's much harder to find Christ the way we did in a Christian world, in Dante's world. And I would say even in the pagan world, because as you know from our work together in the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, my argument is that Christ is image in every one of those figures, Achilles and Odysseus and Aeneas, that the um, Perusia, the return of the king, is image, that action is image in each one of those books. So implicitly we have an image of Christ in this very heroic um, glory that um, emerges from the heroes when they come back to the people to take on these burdens. That's gone. We're in a naturalistic world and we can say that what we're dealing with are more like anti-heroes, not heroes any longer. We've lost a sense of the heroic, and I think you all know that, so I'm not saying anything that's new. In that sense it's much harder to find Christ, but I want to say this now because I want to set this out as a part of the something I'd like all of us to be aware of and and carry as questions as we go forward. Where is Christ? In people, and I want to ask it differently. Now I'm changing. I'm going to change the terms. Um, since the modern world has lost sense of a God, and we're in a post-Christian world, we're no longer a Christian society. I'm trusting everybody knows that. Um, it's harder. It's harder for people to find Christ in the world. In the Middle Ages it would have been easy, relatively easy. They would have seen Christ everywhere. They would have been aware. They would have carried them. That's not true for our world. So, where do we find Christ in these figures? And more importantly for me, and this is going to be the major perspective in in which I would like everybody to orient themselves to get clear on things. If, I'm going to still ask you do we find Christ in any individuals? Because I think we do. There's still Christ-like actions. Um, but I'd like to change the, the orientation, the perspective on the question, and put it this way. Since it's harder for people to be aware of God in this world, Christ, that most people, so many people deny him today. The Protestants believe in him as a savior, but they don't believe in a logos. Um, I'm not even sure that that denying the Logos the way they do because nature for them is corrupted, that they can even see the workings of the Spirit in nature. And yet when Christ left, he said he was commissioning the Spirit to pick up his work. So we we believe that the Spirit came, that the church was begun, and the Spirit carries forward the work of Christ in history. So, one of my questions is, can we find the workings of the Spirit? And in in explicitly for us, that means the Spirit of Christ, because that was his commission, to to carry on the work of Christ in the world. It's, It's continued. So, can we find Christ in the actions of people and in their work, and more specifically, can we find Christ in writings, the words that people use, the way they speak, what they speak. That's a much subtler thing. Is that clear? Is that clear? So instead of always looking for a literal image of a Christ figure, do we find Christ in the words of people, and the reason I'm saying this is because it's going to go to our poetry. I'm going to, I mean, one of the things that I'm going to um, claim in our work together is that one of the ways in which Faulkner is revealing Christ is not just in characters, what they do, because so many of them seem far removed from Christ. These are not medieval Christian-like figures, they're very modern. Is there something Christ-like in his writing? Is he revealing something through his writing that nobody else does in the modern world? So, and, um, and it, to help with that question, it, it, it would probably be good to keep the Holy Spirit in mind. Do we find the working of the Spirit in the words that people use? What they, what they say, how they say it. Is something being revealed through them that ordinarily we don't see? And one of the arguments that I'm gonna be making as we go through Faulkner is that he's doing something with language that, that we haven't seen since Dante Shakespeare and Gerard Manley Hopkins and the Wind Hover and you know some of the other things that we read together. So just keep those questions alive, okay? So that from this point on, since we're in a naturalistic world and there's it's not a world that looks up to Christ much anymore. Um, No, we don't find characters trying to imitate him, you know, the way the Catholic Church has been asked to do. We find characters in a natural world, Um, it's like Melville's world. They they seem like they've turned away from their Christian belief. Molly's one of the rare figures in Faulkner who believes, I mean, she she leaves Lucas, I'm trusting you've all read it, she leaves Lucas because she's afraid, he's cursed, that he's going against God. She says, I've got to get away from him, I've got to get free of him, he's cursed. This is God's land and he's violating it. He's, he's, he's doing, these are not her words, what she said, he's doing something sacrilegious and she wants a vos, a vos. Remember she goes to um, Roth and says, I want a vos, <laughs> I want a divorce. She's got to leave him and um, um, Edmunds won't give it to her. And the next thing we learn is she takes off and she almost dies trying to escape Lucas, they have to find her. Everybody goes out searching for her and they find her practically dead. And they go to court to carry out the divorce proceedings and we'll get to that today you know what happens. But anyway, it's, it's, not a, it's the world as we know it today. It's not the Middle Ages. So where is Christ in this world? Is he here? Is he gone? Was Nietzsche right? Is God dead um, for all practical purposes? Um, or can we find Christ? And you know from what I've been saying all along is that the poets, the really great poets, are the ones who reveal strange things to us. Is Faulkner doing that or does his reputation rest on other grounds? Just a question to put out, okay? Okay, in, in light of that, I, I decided to make a change in the poetry that we're going to read. We were going to do Wordsworth. Sorry to keep bouncing you guys around, God. We were going to do Wordsworth, but I thought, no, it would be better to do um, Hopkins. So you all have the handout tonight of the Hopkins poem, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, is there a new handout? Yeah. I think I put one on your... Should you should do one There you go. The Loss of the Eurydice is the title Eurydice. page like this. I don't You mm-hmm. see that. I think that's it. Don't that. Yes, I've got it. You yeah. it. Got got, um, I'm going to leave the loss of the Eurydice to you all, just to read it. I'm trusting you're all going to do it, and not let your work get in the way. What milk? <laughs> We're going to do the Wreck of the Dutchland, and what I'd like to do is do it in parts, because it's too long, it's way too long. So, it's going to unfold like a mystery story, and here's the question because it relates so directly to what I just said, absolutely directly to what I just said. The poem's called The Wreck of the Dutchland. It's one of the most difficult poems in English language, one of the most difficult, one of the most difficult. I'm so glad to offer it to you guys. It's one of the hard, Um, Robert Bridges, who was a poet himself, a 19th century poet and a dear friend of Hopkins, um, exchange letters, correspondence with Hopkins over the course of their friendship for years and and he would have comments to say to Hopkins, and very often they were critical of Hopkins because Hopkins was doing something so new, so original that there were no reference points for judging it. So he was negative a lot, and he when, when he and Hopkins corresponded over the record of the Dutchland, bridges. Could make no sense. This is a. This is one of the most intelligent poets of the nineteenth century. He could make no sense of it. So. (laughs) Okay, we should have no problems. Good, 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 good. And Hopkins wrote back to him, scolding him, scolding him, and said. If you had been more patient, he said it was like the mud in the Thames before it goes through some sort of filter action. He said, if you had been more patient and waited, you would have, you would have seen that it would clarify over time. How's that for a challenge to leave you guys with? Um, Hopkins read an article in the newspaper about the loss, the death of five nuns who had been forced into exile by the Falk laws in Germany. They were dispossessed. You know that during that period that um, Catholic lands, churches were confiscated by the government and they were forced to give them up and often sent into <coughs> exile. These nuns were, lost their property and they were forced into exile. They had to cross the channel and during that channel crossing, they got caught in a storm and died, perished all of them. Hopkins was so moved by that event when he read it in the newspaper and he talked with a priest who said somebody should write a poem about that and he he took the hint from that and sat down and produced I believe what is one of the one of the greatest poems in the English language one of the most difficult but it's one of the greatest so it's an account of that channel crossing but, but the account of that channel crossing is only the context for exploring the ways of God in the world and his own personal crisis. Because one of the questions that, he, that um, left him in anguish was how could God allow this to happen? Here are these sisters who believed in him, who were, who, were, who were victimized. You know, we just left this victim world in Melville where everybody's wounded. Here are these four sisters forced away and this one towering nun who apparently caught the mind of one of the journalists and, and was described as doing these extraordinary sh- things during the, um, during the, 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 the um, foundering of the ship. And Hopkins imagined that. And he asked himself, how could God let this happen? And he so identified with the sisters, and particularly this one, the, the, the sister superior of the group, that he goes through it with her. And it raises all sorts of questions about Christ in the world. So in the middle of this poem, he reaches a personal crisis of his own. And it takes place in the act of writing poetry. It could not go more to the purposes of what we're doing. So read it. Read it on your own. I hope you will. I'm going to take a couple of weeks to go through it. We'll just read it in parts. And I'm not going to... I'm going to keep my comments brief the way I do and, um, and trust that, that you guys are serious enough about it that you'll give it some time at home. But, so, we're going to do the Wreck of the Ditchland for the next few weeks, okay? Just in parts, starting tonight. So, and remember if you go back to The Wind Hover and um, Dragonflies, um, Catch Flames, remember those two poems that were so important. Remember, Hopkins saw God in the in the wind hover. He saw him in the 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 farmer plowing his land, the plow down sillion shine. The, you know the the, the radiance that um, emerges from the soil when a when a farmer works it. And um, for the fire going out, remember, fall gall gash gold vermilion. When the fire reaches that point where it begins to burn out and then it produces this radiant glow, this beautiful vermilion color. In each of those things he saw an image of, an analogy of the crucifixion. So we've had that before. So go back and pull out that Hopkins poem and read those, it will help, and look at the biographical note, I think I put on the back of it, and then keep those handy when you read this, okay? But I would say go back and read those, they're short, and then struggle with this. And remember what he said, to bridges, if you only are patient, that muddy water will get clear and clear and clear as you, <laughs> as you, as you um, work through it. The Wreck of the Ditchland. To the happy memory of the five friends, six, and nuns exiled by the Flock Laws, drowned between midnight and morning of December 7, 1875, um, the first part. Thou mastering me, God, giver of breath and bread, world strand, sway of the sea. Lord of living and dead, thou hast bound bones and veins in me, fastened me flesh, and after it, almost unmade, what with dread thy doing, and dost thou touch me afresh? Over again I feel thy finger and find thee. I did say yes, oh, at lightning and lashed rod, thou heardest me truer than tongue confessed thy terror. O Christ, O God. Thou knowest the walls, alter an hour and night, the swoon of a heart, the sweep and the hurl of thee trod hard down with a horror of height, and the midriff a strain with the leaning of, laced with, the fire of stress. The frown of his face before me, the hurl of hell behind, where, where was a, where was a place I whirled out wings that spell and fled with a fling of the heart to the heart of the host. My heart, but you were dove-winged, I can tell, carrier-witted, I am bold to boast, to flash from the flame to the flame then, tower from the grace to the grace. I am soft sift in an hourglass. I don't know if any of you have had this experience, but I certainly have when I deal with my sins. I don't know how to describe and accept a soft sin. I mean, instead of having the firmness to always say no, you know, sometimes we give in to things and we know that we shouldn't, whatever it is, eat too much or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like a soft sift instead of something firm. And he's confessing that in himself. I am soft sift in an hourglass at the wall fast, but mind with emotion adrift. This is the original sin in him. Is that clear, that image? At the wall, it's very firm. It's held by the glass, right? But in the middle, if you know an hourglass, that sand just pours down. <laughs> um, I am soft sift in an hourglass, at the wall fast, but mine with emotion adrift, and it crowns and it combs to the fall. I steady as a water in a well, to a poise, to a pain, but roped with always, all the way down from the tall fells or flanks of the vole, a vein of the gospel proffer, a pressure, a principle, Christ's gift. I kiss my hand to the stars, lovely asunder starlight, wafting him out of it and glow glory and thunder. Christ is there, he sees him in the heavens. Kiss my hand to the dapple with the damson west, since though he is under the world's splendor and wonder, his mystery must be in-stressed. Stress, we have to live with Christ to stress that mystery in the world. And for him as a poet, he has to find a way of stressing that word in his poetry to feel Christ. It's, it's his way of, by the stress of his lines, that we feel the, like the pressure of the Spirit actually working in the lines. Since though he's under the world's splendor and wonder, his mystery must be in-stressed, stressed, stressed, for I greet him the days I meet him and bless when I understand. Not out of his bliss springs the stress felt, nor first from heaven, and few know this, swings the stroke dealt. Stroke and a stress that stars and storms deliver. That guilt is hushed by, hearts are flushed by and melt but it rides time like riding a river and here the faithful waver, the faithless fable and mist. They tell stories about him, fables, not quite true, and they miss him. It dates from the day of his going on Galilee. I'm gonna leave it there, that's where we'll pick up. So, at the beginning he's looking He's looking at the world in general, universal terms, and his own personal struggles with Christ where he finds him and um, the struggle that he has with him, um, where he sees him, where he meets him, where he fails and finds himself falling, and um, it will go on. Remember there's a, remember the, the word that we've been using from the beginning is action, the plot? There's a plot to this, this action so at the very beginning this action is is both personal and universal he's locating himself in the universe but in the back of his mind is the death of these five Franciscan nuns um, and it's going to bring him to a very personal crisis the best way to see this is I, I'm, I'm assuming that all of us you know have similar struggles with work with people around us at church if we look at the universe in large ways that um, and we feel some personal failures or struggles with Christ, and I'm sure they're a little bit different for each of us because they are each different, but all of us have these crises. You know, certain things happen during the day that, um, that um, rub us against Christ, and it produces certain struggles, and we have to struggle with them. So this is the beginning of that struggle for Hopkins, okay? Um, and it's going to take us to the shipwreck and something that, dramatic that, that happens with him in the process of doing it as he writes about it, so. Okay, let's turn to function. Mm-hmm. By the way, I should have said this earlier. I don't know if there's anyone left. Suzanne made some, at our house in Easter we have a a Greek Easter. Suzanne's kept that traditional life from my side of the family, so she makes lamb spaghetti and spanakopita. It's a Greek spinach. It's really good, and she makes the kudulakia, I'm not sure. There's cookies, Greek cookies that are twisted. Um, if you haven't tried them, you should try them. They're really good. There's only, a, I think there's only a couple of left. You might, if you haven't had one, try one. Okay. Um, A very, 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 very brief review, Um, I feel like we've been away for a month, a long time. When we met last time, I just did a very quick overview, pulling the North and South together and made the point that in America there really are two cultures, you can say four, north and south and east and west because I think the east coast and west west coast even though they're metropolitan coastline cultures they're very different. New York is very different from from Hollywood. Is there anything in the world like Hollywood? I don't know it. Um, but there are fundamental differences in culture that, that are radical that divide the country north and south and I made the point last week that if if we take Melville's Moby Dick and Faulkner's Go Down Moses and look at them as um, windows in which to look into the cultures um, that they're um, they're looking at, that we see two very very two very very different cultures. Um, Plymouth was founded in 19- sixteen twenty and it was principally a religious founding. We saw that the people who came to Plymouth were motivated by religious freedoms they wanted religious convictions they wanted to have the freedom to practice their beliefs. They fled the the Netherlands and they went to the Netherlands from England because they were being persecuted in England, remember? And that group was made up of two different groups, the separatists and the Puritans. The Puritans still believed in the Anglican reforms, but, but they were critical of them because they didn't believe they went far enough. The separatists believe that the Anglican reforms were flawed fundamentally. They wanted an entirely new church. The one thing that they had in common between them was Calvin and in some ways Luther. And we saw the effects of that played out because we looked at Ahab as really a a man, a human being who was raised in a Calvinistic culture. And I raised the question for you, became a sort of alarming question for me as I began to rethink the book this time. What would it be like if you lived in a culture like that and begin to wonder if you were one of the damned? But some people were predestined to be damned and to, to have a view of that, that sort, what it would do to people. To, to be damned when you had no will in it, no action, you did nothing to deserve it because you, none, of, whether you were predestined to damnation or heaven, didn't matter, you had no free will either way. Um, but to be damned without having a choice in it, to me is, I, it, it's just so hard for me to get my mind around that, but people do believe in it. And I, and I made the point as we went through my book that I think that's what Melville is dealing with. It's a horrible condition in America, and it's part of our founding. So we looked at the North as a religious founding, it's, it's fundamentally in spirit, metaphysical, because it's religious, it wants to get to the depths of things. And it's also, be, because of Calvin and Luther, highly individualistic. All of the people in the New England culture were, I, we don't see people together. There were no couples. Kwee and Ishmael were the, was the closest we get to a couple. And they're married. They look at themselves as married. Remember when Kwee wakes wakes, I mean when Ishmael wakes up in the morning he finds Kwee arm in him. This is a cannibal. And it's then that he felt this deep affection for this person the night before almost terrified him. Um, and all of the men on the ships were called Isolados. Isolado. each one was an island to himself. Um, Ahab is one of the most isolated figures in all of literature. His quest isolates him. It's only at the end that he becomes attached to Pip. And even then, he feels the danger um, of his affections for Pip because he knows that if he becomes too affectionate, it will separate him from his quest, and he won't let it happen. He even scolds him and tells him he'd kill him. Um, And remember, interesting, one of the great ironies, Pip doesn't want to let go of him. I don't think Pip ever does, even when Ahab goes on deck, remember the last scene, and leaves Pip below in his chair, that in some ways, he remains faithful to Ahab. That's in his nature after that change in him. The South was a very different founding, the South was an economic founding, it came as a business enterprise to make a plantation. So it's already carrying the, um, the aristocratic class and implicitly some sets of class differences with it, slaves will be used to carry on the work of the plantation. And We talked about how different it was, it, it, it modeled itself on ancient Rome and ancient Greece, um, it took seriously the Greek and Roman languages. Every, everybody who was educated was educated in the Greek and Roman languages in the South. That was a part of the education. Um, Ike's father and uncle have Roman and Greek name. Amodius means God, love of God in Latin. Theophilus um, means the love of God in Greek. Um, the founding from the beginning was practical, pragmatic, Um, it was agrarian in nature, it was to work with the land to help it produce um, a harvest so that they could take the fruits of that harvest back to the, back to Europe, the old world. Um, Very pragmatic, so it's, it's not metaphysical the way the north was, it's far more pragmatic, and out of it emerged this, this sense last week that I describe in terms of a we if the, if the North was individualistic the South was communal, communal. and um, remember when we looked at the beginning of the of good Moses I, I read that passage and said who's this writer who's, who's the narrator Isaac McCaslin and Uncle Like, this was not something participated in or even seen. He goes on and on. Remember, who is that? Um, and, I, and I referred you to that page. I can't remember what it was now 150 or something, 130. Where Faulkner uses that phrase. What page? Does anybody remember? Uh, oh, oh, here it is. God. Page 250. Um, or, what, uh, two, what are you, 249, two 48? Oh, thanks. Remember at the bottom of that paragraph uh, that begins, yes, more men than father, it says, in which was recorded the injustice and a little at least of its amelioration and restitution faded back forever into the anonymous communal original dust. There is this sense of another voice that can only be rendered in terms of a we, an anonymous communal. I think that's a perfect phrase for describing the narrator. But what we hear in the opening of Go Down Moses is a we. It's statesman, it's, it's, um, um, it contains the spirit of a judicial system because so much of its language is um, um, administrative, legalistic, it belongs to a courtroom, ledgers, contracts. Remember, because what's at issue in the whole novel is whether Ike should have received his inheritance or not. That was a legal piece of paper. So at the center of this, the novel, the plot, is this fundamental question of of land being passed on and somebody being legally being entitled to it. Whoever this narrator is carries this sense of larger communal lawful unlawful actions. Um, So it's not Ishmael, it's not calling me Ishmael, it's not an individual, it's the expression of a we. So the South is different in its cultural identity. It conceives itself in communal terms. So we've got, in these two cultures, um, two radical different ways of standing in the world. Ishmael, remember, was the outcast one. And we talked about that. Ishmael is not that narrator's name. He says, call me Ishmael, which means that's not his name. He's taken on a new identity to express the fact that he no longer has a place in this Christian world, that, that it's become so flawed that he has no way of dealing with it except by taking on a new identity. Call me Ishmael. He's the, he's the outcast. Remember, if you go back to the Genesis story of Abraham and um, Sarah and... Um, the white... what's. The Har- Hagar. 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 Remember, Hagar conceives um, Ishmael with um, Abraham. So he's the outcast one. Uh, he stands outside of this world. Faulkner is looking at the Isaac um, covenant, the the child of promise, and it's going to be interesting now <coughs> to see that because you would think, on the surface of it, that. The fact that Melville chose Ishmael means we're going to get a very, very dark picture of the North. And the fact that, cho- that Faulkner chose Isaac should give a much more promising picture of the South. Now, we're, I'm not going to say anything about that, but we're going to have to look and see what Faulkner does with this. But this is the child of promise. This is the one who, who God said he will be the one to carry on. And remember that one thing that distinguishes Ike as a character is his renunciation of his inheritance, he gives it up. And the central question of the book is, should he have given that up? And we'll have to wait to the end to look at that. So, um, um, when we look at the two cultures, we see fundamental differences between them. And I would say they are different sins, too. That The sin of the North is, is a kind of intellectual pride. Um, it's Ahab, dealing with metaphysical questions and this question about whether or not evil is ultimately behind things. Um, and the, the fundamental sin of the South, it seems to me, is this, um, this spirit of possessiveness. What happens when a person lays claim to the land and treats it as if it's his, so that he says, it's mine. And notice how that Flies in the face of we it's mine because once, once you're legally um, entitled to that land, certain things happen and I'm going I'm to come back to that in a minute because it, it, to me it's one of the great it's one of the great things in this work and it, it's very subtle um, I'll come back to it in a minute um, we, we also talked about the, the form of the novel. remember that um, I, I called the form. Um, asynchronic. Synchronic means with time, to move with time. Almost all novels, generally speaking, most novels up to the 20th century were synchronic, they were sequential, they were (coughs) coherent. The plot moved from one thing from cause to effect, and there rarely breaks. In the modern world, um, certainly because of the discoveries with Freud and and Jung and psychology, we we get a much more profound sense of the importance of the interior life and the way that it breaks into events, the way that it can take hold, and it changes our notion of time. Just, just for one example, one, we'll look at it in a minute. When Lucas comes to Roth's house to tell on George, remember in Fire in the Hearth in the Opening, he comes to the porch. When he arrives at that porch, suddenly there's that long retrospect of that moment, I think it's 45 years earlier, whatever, I, I'll look at the time in a minute, where he went to Zach's house, Roth's father, to kill him, because he was convinced, convinced that Zach had sex with Molly, his wife. That's, that chapter takes probably 20 pages. Well, all of that happens in a matter of what, a minute? Are you all following? He's at the porch, he knocks on the door, Roth is going to come out, and suddenly we go back in time, and after that episode we return to the porch, and Edmund goes, George Wilkins? What do you, you, know, what do you, what do you have to say about him? So we know that in that, in that chapter, two minutes have elapsed. And what it teaches us is that time is not, from a spiritual point of view, St. Augustine would have loved this, from a spiritual point of view, time is not coherent and neat and tidy. That, that from a spiritual perspective, strange things happen. That this other time suddenly intervenes, ruptures, in a sense. It forces itself on and we're in a different world. And as we read the novel, I know you all know this, it presents certain problems to us because we have to, we have to then put things together. We have to take them and put them in a logical order. Um, so it, it requires a new way of reading and a new way of perceiving reality, that we learn to see things differently. That's what great poets have been showing us. So time is not linear the way it is for a, for a scientific clock. Time is not linear. It's asyncratic. It's working through different, against time. We're, we're time intervals um, don't follow logically one on another. Is that clear? Mm-hmm. clear? Okay. Okay. Um, I want to turn to um, the story, but before we do, I want to I want to just um, mention a couple of things about Faulkner that that um, I think you'll find interesting. <coughs> Um, he was born in 1897. This is close to the time that Ike was born, actually, interesting. Um, um, he was, he was, Faulkner's life is a really interesting life, an amazing, amazing life. He was born in the South with a very deep and intense awareness of his heritage, what he inherited. He was very aware that the men who came before him lived in a heroic world. It's going to be one of the themes of God and Moses. What he's aware of stepping into the modern world is that moderns have turned away from that heroic past, the Iliad, the Odyssey, um, in which men were expected to do great things. They fought the Civil War heroically, men died, and they carried memories of those. And they carry those memories against an awareness that the modern man lives more and more In in a world of machines, scientific machines, in in which humans think less of themselves, they don't have this sense of nobility or honor, they become almost robotic. Work makes us robotic, and people are no longer willing to risk themselves. His great-great- or his great-grandfather died in a duel, I think in Jefferson or Oxford, I can't remember, In, in the street, two men dueled. I mean, it was still a question. You know, they did that in the South. I mean, over a question of honor, they'd take out guns and duel, and so And that was one of the things he held in his, in his memory, um, because he carried that strong sense of honor. It, it did strange things to him. I think when he was young, um, early in life, he couldn't get into service when he wanted to enlist. So he he went to Canada and enlisted in the Canadian Air Force, because the um, United States. Armed services wouldn't accept him because he was so small. He was a, I think he was five seven. I mean a short man. And um, the war ended before he had any chance to fly or get involved in actual combat. And when he came back, he still he told stories of things that didn't have to be, fabricated stories to make himself seem heroic, and and he carried that on for a while. Um, Um, At some point he went to Europe when it became clear that he was taking writing seriously and he joined that youth, that that group of um, disenchanted American intellectuals, Hemingway and Gertrude Stein and other people who um, lived in England and and, and France. Um, He lived in France for a while and actually visited the, the restaurant where he knew James Joyce visited regularly but he never spoke to him because he was just very, a very timid man by nature. Um, but he learned Faulkner could not have done what he did without Joyce. Joyce's influence on in Faulkner was tremendous. Um, I want to just read a couple of things here. Um, um, I, I mentioned last time that a number of his novels became popular immediately, particularly in Europe, and then went almost as immediately out of favor. Um, the, the third or fourth novel he wrote was Sound and the Fury and that was a masterpiece and he followed it with As I Lay Dying which is another masterpiece um, and Jean-Paul Sartre said this about Faulkner I think at a time when he was going out of favor for the young people in France Faulkner is a god and this is while in America people no longer recognize him because the French tend to be sort of intellectual and um, on a cutting edge of literature always. Um, Later in his life he was doing an interview when Hemingway had become one of the most popular writers in America and he had this to say, he had this to say about Hemingway. He said, this is to the person interviewing him, and I, you know how sometimes journalists scramble things, so I don't know that we've got this accurately. But um, he was quoted as saying of Hemingway, "He has no courage; has never climbed out on a limb." This is when Hemingway is one of the most established writers in America, by far. I mean, there, there is another, there is not another novelist in America at this time. Even Faulkner is quite not quite as popular as Hemingway at this point. He has no, and if you know Hemingway, you know how important courage was to him. He he wanted to see himself as a bullfighter or being able to do brave things. And so many of his heroes do brave things and die from it. He had this strong sense of honor. He looks back to the Iliad, this sense of honor and courage. That's at the root of everything Hemingway did. For Faulkner to say to him he has no courage, had to strike right at the heart of this man. He has no courage. Has never climbed out on a limb. Has never used a word where the reader might check his usage by a dictionary. <laughs> Hemingway was genuinely hurt because Fa- Faulkner was a well-known writer, and, and and in and out. But but what people, when people did have something good to say about him, it was amazingly good because there was so much to him. The two corresponded after that. I'm, I'm actually. I mean, I. I'm I love Faulkner. I'm sorry to see what this correspondence between him and Hemingway, but... Um, Faulkner replied to Hemingway and he apologized for the misunderstanding and the pain that he caused him, but he defended his remarks saying that they referred only to Hemingway's craftsmanship as a writer and told how he was judging the quality of writing on its degree of failures, that Hemingway was next to last because he didn't have the courage to risk bad taste, overriding dullness. <coughs> I'm gonna read that again, because that's, that's a telling comment, and it says something about the spirit with which those two people did their work. That Hemingway was next to last because he didn't have the courage to risk bad taste, overriding dullness. Because what does Faulkner do? Is, <laughs> Fred's not here tonight. Melville's Audnasium, Audnasium and yeah. Faulkner can go on forever, and you know that yeah. it, the last thing you can say about this yeah. is this is English proper. Yeah. Um, it's colloquial, and by the way, we yeah. didn't, we, I didn't mention this. Remember in the opening we talked about this, there's no grammar, no punctuation? Yeah. What in li- if if a writer is imitating the world, what in the world corresponds to beginning with a capital letter, ending with a punctuation, commas, what in world fits those structures? Definitely yeah. Not your evening news. <laughs> Wait, are you all following? Look look at look around us. Anywhere in the world. What what in the structures of reality finds its correspondence? I mean, that. C- could be written that way in terms of caps at the beginning period at the ends commas subject verb predicate. Yeah. What in the, what in reality corresponds to that? Are you all following? In one way, no? The world isn't divided into night-knee-tidy sentences. It's fluid, it's chaotic, it's random. Things fall over, you know, they trip on each other. Language isn't as clean and proper. I'm gonna argue against this next week, but I wanna wanna make the point here. He, he, He is writing a language without punctuation because in some ways that corresponds to the world that the world isn't dividable up into these nice and tidy neat categories. And he's criticizing Hemingway because he's saying there's nothing Hemingway wrote that wasn't something you couldn't look up in a dictionary, that it's all clean clean and neat, that he didn't risk bad taste, overriding dullness. What does that say about the technique of the two men? And by the way, this is so true. If you've read Hemingway, you know, Hemingway is the most fastidious of writers, absolutely fastidious. He wants to make every work of art perfect. What does that say about his life? He took his life at the end of his life. Mm -hmm. Everything had to be perfect, absolutely perfect. Mm -hmm. So so in in a world in which there's no longer a god and you're an artist, where is there perfection but in the work that you do? Think about the effects of that on that man. What Faulkner is saying here is, you, you, you cannot let that get in the way of something else, whatever that something else is, you know, the trusting. Of, because I, I made the point last week, when you look at what Faulkner is writing, he never repeated himself, absolutely never. Every, every novel is completely different in form, absolutely different. Hemingway repeated himself again and again and again and again. That, and I'm saying this because I'm trusting all of you know the sin of... Um, scrupulosity. (laughs) Catholics are supposed to be famous for it. We, you know, we have to have everything perfect. I'm saying this because I'm trusting everybody knows the danger of this today that, you know, that you'll sympathize with this, think about it. Anyway, those were his words to Hemingway. What I don't like, this makes me sad, but I'm going to read it. The two exchanged letters again. Faulkner wrote Hemingway including a copy of the letter to his publisher again and, and again polishing or p- apologizing to him, and then saying, I hope it will matter a damn to you but if or whatever it does please accept another squirm from yours truly. What a glib apology, I mean that embarrasses me. <laughs> there is so much great to be said about Faulkner. That to me is one of the most unkind things ever do. do. Um, Two, two, two last things, um, um, two, I'll take them in order. Faulkner got the Nobel Prize in 1949, Hemingway got it I think in 1954, I'm not sure, but shortly after. In his acceptance, he didn't want to go to, to accept his award and was finally persuaded by friends to go. He wrote something like this, he alluded to the impending Cold War and the constant fear this is a quote, the general and universal physical fear whose consequence was to make the young man or woman writing today forget the problems of the human heart in conflict with itself which alone can make good writing because only that is worth writing about. This is one of the fundamental themes of every work he wrote. The problems of the human heart in conflict with itself which alone can make good writing, because only that is worth writing about, worth agony and the sweat. The artist, Faulkner said, must relearn the old verities. I would put this on the board. He must relearn the old verities and truths of the heart, the old universal truths lacking which any story is ephemeral and doomed. Love and honor and pity and pride and the compassion and sacrifice. I decline to accept the end of man. I believe that man will not merely endure, he will prevail. He is immortal not because he alone among creatures has an inexhaustible voice but because he has a soul, a spirit capable of compassion and sacrifice and endurance. The poet's, the writer's duty is to write about these things. The poet's voice need not merely be the record of man It can be one of the props, the pillars to help him endure and prevail. So right at the heart of that, I mean, acceptance speech is this affirmation of the spirit of man. To not only endure, but prevail. Because there is something immortal in the spirit of man. Um, Last thing, and I'll I'll come back to some biographical things each time we meet for a while. But um, anyway, uh, Faulkner had bouts of, of drinking, heavy drinking in his life he went through periods where he just... Um, what was the... Um, it's, what's that word? Um, I can't find the word, but anyway these bouts of drinking and he drank a lot over the course of his life um, and very often he would do it consciously and set periods up for drinking and typically he would go through his heaviest drinking after he completed work let me say this because I I personally believe this really strongly some people look at him critically because he was alcoholic or he's that's not a good word he's not alcoholic in a clinical sense I I would look at it this way If, if you took on if you took on the the anguish of writing what he did that is that is to be a great writer I'm gonna say you get close to the saint it goes to this whole question that I asked earlier can we find Christ in the writings of a person, in what he says, the way he says it? If you have to step back and deny yourself to make this thing good, and if there's a good this spirit of endurance and prevailing, this love and you know, all that's there in this work, if you have to do that and go into the human condition to do it and look at things that other people won't look at, what does that cost you? My own sense is that when he got through the writings, he went and drank, I mean, I'm not sure that he could have done anything else, um, given you know, his background. But so some people look at him critically. I look at him and think, oh, no, I don't know what else he could have done. But the fact that he came, kept coming back to it—I mean, he—you know—he he was a serious writer. Periodically, um, he he went to Hollywood to write scripts and got sickened by the Hollywood experience and would always return. And in the midpoint of his life, he, um, on the advice of somebody, when he was struggling with his writing. The person told him, go back and write about what you know. This is after his trip to France and Europe. He went home and he started writing about the South and Mississippi. And it was when he began to write about what he really knew that this great world emerged and he produced what I think is probably the greatest body of fictional writing in the 20th century. So, Okay. Um, Candy, I, you, I thought you were going to say something or had do you. I—I that's—I've never put it quite that way, but I certainly believe that that. Um, oh, uh, just yeah. There was nothing. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Not that description. <sighs> well, you have to also realize, though, I mean, in northern Mississippi at, at that time frame had. Some of the best moonshine people in the, in the whole world. I mean, that was, you know, the the backyards were full of Lucas Bochamps well, with their they stills. Were, they were just, you know, he was were, celebrating. They were everywhere. I I can tell you, back in the sixties. I mean, I. You know. I, be, I believe that. I don't know, but I, I, I don't have any questions. I did there. That. Yeah. <laughs> what? I, uh, I can't answer that because I don't know his personal life but but what I know from his as a man and what I know about myself and, you know right. us as humans it's hard for me to believe that it, it's some deep place in him that wasn't a lot of pride and arrogance and I don't know that it would have been expressed that way because he yeah, had that southern sense of manners you know um, but he was absolutely committed to his writing and um, it's some deep place, it seems to me there would have been a lot of pride in him, a lot of, and in Hemingway too. They, in some ways, they had to be rivals to each other. Um, Let's look at at um, Fire in the Heart. What I'm going to do tonight is is just recount the story, and then I want to look at those two flashbacks for the importance that they have. Um, remember, in, there are three chapters in in. Um, fire in the hearth. And in the first one, Lucas discovers that George is um, selling liquor on the side, and he doesn't want a rival. And more important, <laughs> well, not more importantly, but equally importantly, he, he doesn't want George marrying his daughter. So to get George out of the picture, he wants to go to Roth Edmonds and inform on him, to tell him that that um, George has got the still, but to cover his tracks he's got to move his still so when the sheriff and the men come looking for George's still they won't find his. And you know that that's the beginning of all this commotion and, and during the middle of the night he hears something and we learn later that it was his daughter following him and, and that when he comes back in the morning to inform on, on George, um, he wakes up and both George's still and his own are on the porch um, because Nat wanted to do it in order to blackmail her father. This sense of cunning that runs through, um, particularly the blacks. I mean, you can't just say that, the, if anything, it's less a quality of the whites, although it's there, it's the, the women are cunning and the blacks because they're the, they're the, I don't know what you call them, the, I mean, they're the ones who have to struggle against the men and the, and the, the owners of the plantations and who, who take so much for granted. Um, I want to look at the at the flashback to that. Um, in Chapter Two, you remember, after he discovers that coin in the mound, he's convinced that there's buried treasure there, and he sends away to get this um, metal detector. and you know that he becomes obsessed with it. And the funny <laughs> he he cons the salesman into into giving it to him and and really screws him. I mean, he, he he gets he gets rid of the, the mule problem. He gets money, and then at the very end, he's renting the machine out to the salesman and making money off it. So so in in exactly in the same way that the Edmonses are exploiting the land, there's nobody in this movie in this story who's not exploiting the land or somebody else. It's not just the whites; it's the blacks; it's it's everybody. Because the fundamental problem here, and I'm going to come to this in a minute. Is what this particular relationship to the Earth does for man? I want to come back to and I want to underline that in a minute, because for Faulkner, it's more universal. And you remember in, in the third chapter, Molly come, it opens with Molly coming to Roth and saying that she wants a voice, that she really believes that, that what um, Lucas is doing is an offense to God, that she's frightened for him and she knows she can't stop him. You remember what Roth says, he says, if you were younger I'd tell you what to do. You go out every night and do the same thing and when Lucas sees, I mean, it's a sort of, it's that prudent, prudential wisdom you come to when you have to deal with something like a, an addiction or a problem in a family, you, you turn it around. But Molly's too old to do that, he knows. And he says he'll come and talk with Lucas and then when he does, you know, he discovers, he's told that she's missing and a search party is sent out and they find her Half dead, and they go to court, and the 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 grounds for the divorce are set out, and it's suddenly at that point that Lucas remits, and he says, "I changed my mind." And there's that so, it's a a beautiful moment. I'm I'm going to say, I mean, it's a Christ-like moment for Lucas, when they leave the courtroom, and and there's no divorce proceedings anymore. He goes, nobody knows what he's doing. He goes across the store and comes back, and then he gives Molly that bag of candy. You know, that, I mean, if you think about it, um, this isn't a thousand-dollar gift. He's not on his knees begging for apologies or pardon. But for Lucas Beauchamp to do that, if you've read the story, you know what a proud man is. I mean, he is, there's almost nobody in this book more proud than Lucas Beauchamp. For him to do that was not a small thing. Um, And he gives Molly the candium. I want to read those, let's go to those, um, um, so two two things. Two two major themes or a couple major themes. We've seen how almost every work that we've dealt with, all the epics have had to do with the male-female um, the sexual relationships right from the beginning from the Iliad on um, it, it, it really is in the background in Melville but it's in the foreground in here remember in the opening in the opening story that wonderfully comic story which is presented in terms of the hunt metaphor the, the dogs are chasing the fox and um, and we learned that Safanzova is chasing Buck and, and when it's all concluded the, the description of it is that was a good race that, um, that, that Buck handled himself well even though he he only gets out of it because Buddy wins the poker game when, they, when he plays um, Hubert but the men enter into this with the sense of a contest that there is underlying all the actions of people Something that men have in common with animals—they go after something, and it takes the nature of a hunt. I want—it's the the way the desires get worked out. So we don't think in those terms today, but in some sense we could. You want something, you go after it. It's a sort of hunt. Um, The 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 great theme—the great theme at the center of this book—is the land. And to see it as it is, and it's, it's going to become clear with every story we read. It's going, to, it's going to deepen in an amazing way. It's impossible to appreciate how important the land is unless we conceive of it in terms of a distinction. Um, Molly says, um, she's quoting scripture. What's mine is mine. I talked about that last week. God made nature. Nature's his. The city is man's. He makes a city on it in an attempt to live without God. But, but it, it, a man who's got his sense should take his bearings from God. Most men don't. Um, in this book, there's a difference between the land as it's understood as a contract and the land that's not man's to own. Because once man relates to the land as something that he thinks is his, the spirit of possessiveness takes over him and he begins to treat it as an object. And that spirit, that dynamism, gets carried out in everything he does. He treats other people that way. So the Edmondses who are owners, who are entitled legally to the land, still carry that attitude with them, even if they're not aware of it. And so do the blacks, inversely, because the danger facing everybody in this book is this sin of the land, of treating something as if it's mine, saying it's mine. Because over and over again we get these lines, it was not the Indians to give to Sutmans, it was not Sutmans to sell to the McCaslans, it was not Carothers McCaslans To give to um, Theophilus, and not his to give to his son, Ike. When it gets to Ike, we will see this later, he's the first person in that line to renounce his heritage. And one of the reasons he's doing it is because he sees what happens when when people live that way in the world, because because it affects everything they do. And we see that. In spades, in this story here, and particularly in Pantaloon's and black, everything Lucas does, even though he's trying to be a man, is defined in those terms. I, I hope that's clear. He keeps relating himself to McCasm, I'm as good a man as he is. There's no way he can escape it. That's what you know. Even even if he tries to escape it, the way of doing it is being tougher than old MacCuther, old Mac, um, Carruthers, and he'll say, "I'm as good as man as him." And at one point, he'll say that I wasn't as good as him, or you know, he. It's the way he measures himself. Um, so the, f- the fundamental dynamic at the center of this is this intuition that, and we'll see it um, in an amazing way in the old people and in the bear, the two stories we're about to come to, in an amazing way because we're going to see Sam Fathers, the Indian, stands in a different way to the land, and what he passes on to Ike, will be utterly different. Ike will be able to see things in nature that nobody else can. Because he doesn't, he doesn't bring to it that sense of possessiveness. And I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say he's, he's much closer to the great poets. That what he's doing is not to make money, not to get control. It's, he stands in a spirit of beholding. To behold it's far more creative Um, it's not as possessive so um, that's the it seems to me that's the that's the that's the central dynamic of all these stories and we see it played out with Lucas you know he's got this still he he doesn't need it he's got more than enough money he's got all the money in the world in the bank he never used it. it he's very possessive it's gonna stay there because he knows he's got it um, he makes the still, he sells illegal still. Um, when he discovers the coin, he becomes obsessive over it. He wants more. He, can, he cannot stop himself. He cannot stop himself. And then he gets the diviner and he almost loses his marriage. Because he can't stop himself. Um, so let's turn to, let's turn to the, um, that first um, What's that, that, um, that interlude, that retrospect. On page 45. I'm going to try to just read through this roughly. You've all read it, so... Um, but it, it's good to hear it. you got a page 40... Well, wait. it's the it's the section beginning, George Edgman says George Wilkin. This is when Lucas comes to the porch. What page is that? Well, I'm in 44. 44? Okay, I'm on 45, so... So he comes to tell on, to inform on George, right? He, because he wants to get rid of George. He wants, he wants to send him to the penitentiary. God. That, that's, that's how sensitive he is as a man. But this is what happens here. This a oh, Flashback, that's the word I was looking for, flashback. Um, George, Edmund said, George Wilkins, he came out onto the gallery. A young man, still a bachelor, 43 years old, last March, Lucas, did not need to remember that. Now remember, there's... There's the um, different time frames. I, I put them out in that, um, in that sheet I gave you, right? You looked at it. The story takes place in 1941. That's the time we're in. Yes? In eight, or sorry, 1898, Lucas recalls that time when Zach Edmonds came to him. And asked him for Molly, because um, he he needed his wife died and he needed a, a a mother to nurse his son. Lucas has to go get a doctor. It's during the flood time, and he comes back, and Molly takes up occupancy in Zach's house, and she's there for a long period of time. And he's black. This is the slave owner, even if he's free and he can, he's willing, he's free to he go. He still carries that mentality. That, that that sense of subservience or other even though even though he's proud because he knows he his line back to Carruthers is through the male line and Zach's line is through the female line so in some sense he feels superior to, to um, Zach so this is the episode that unfolded um, he would never forget it that night of early spring following ten days of such rain that even the old people remember nothing to compare with it go down, um, at one time he had believed himself gone, done for both himself and the mule, soon to be two more white-eyed and slack-jawed pieces of flotsam to be located by the circling of buzzers, swollen and no longer identifiable, a month hence when the water went down, which he had entered not for his own sake but for that of old Carruthers McCaslin who had sired him, and Zach Edmonds both, to find the white man's wife dead, and his own wife already established in the white man's house." By the way, if you've read Hemingway, you know Hemingway would never write a sentence like that. I mean, all the modifying phrases, the interruptions, the going on, that's a man who's more concerned about trying to capture a hole in front of him than he is with grammatical neatness of his presentation. He's more concerned to be faithful to his own experiences of something that he knows was a part of his experiences, that's why I wrote about what he knew where he grew up, than he was to produce this neat, clean piece of work. It was as though on that lowering and driving day, he had crossed and then recrossed a kind of lethe. Remember, that's the river of forgetfulness in the ancient world emerging, being permitted to escape, buying as a, pe- as a price of life, a world outwardly the same, yet subtly and irrevocably altered. His life would never be the same because his wife is now with this white men. Um, go down, the white man was sitting down. In age, he and Lucas could have been brothers, almost twins too. He leaned slowly back in the chair, looking at Lucas. Well, by God, he said quietly, so that's what you think. What kind of man do you think I am? What kind of a man do you call yourself? I'm a nigger, Lucas says. But I'm a man too. I'm more than just a man. Same thing made my pappy that made your grandma. I'm going to take her back, by God, Edmund said. I never thought to ever pass my oath to a nigger. But I will swear, Lucas had turned already. You can't miss the pride. I mean, he, he, he he's not going to listen to him. He has nothing to hear. He has nothing that... Um, Um, Zach can tell him, not to me, Lucas said, I want her in my house tonight. You understand? And he leaves. Now, you know what happens. um, Go on over to the next page where there's those italics. It describes Lucas breathing, and if you remember Pat Lutz in back, you remember the writer could almost never catch his breath. Remember after Manny, his wife died? One of the motifs of it is he can't breathe that the, the loss of his wife so stays with him that it constricts him. And Lucas is in, that, that is what, Faulkner, this is so incredible. Faulkner enters into these people, so they become real, real human beings. He can't breathe. I mean, imagine any of us feeling that our wife violated our, was adulterous and, the, and that a man used her. She had no choice in the matter. He's breathing harder and harder and deeper and deeper until his faded shirt strained at the buttons on his chest. Maybe when he got old he would become resigned to it, but he knew he would never, not even if he got to be a hundred, and forgot her face and name and the white man's and his too. I will have to kill him, he thought. You all have the page? 48, Bob. 48, thanks. Oh, I'm on 48. It's either 47 or 8. It's It's those italicized sections. Yeah. I will have to kill him, he thought, or I will have to take her and go away. For an instant he thought of going to the white man and telling him they were leaving, now tonight at once. Only if I were to see him again right now, I might kill him, he thought. I think I have decided which I'm going to do, but if I was to see him, meet him now, my might might change. And that's a man, he's, this is Hamlet, he's scolding himself. Yeah. Yeah, he, he cannot face the idea that he doesn't have the courage to deal with this. Because remember, the inheritance is old Carruthers, mated with these slave women. I mean, he had his will did whatever he wanted. I think I've decided which I'm going to do, but if I was to see and meet him now, my mind might change. And that's a man, he thought. He keeps her in his house with him six months, and I don't do nothing. He sends her back to me, and I kills him. It would be like I had done said aloud to the whole world that he never sent her back because I told him to, but he give her back to me because he was tired of her. Either way, he's going to lose. Is that clear? Mm-hmm. If he sends her back, it's like she wasn't good enough. So in his pride, he can't escape being scoured. He either has to face him or, or, or be humiliated if he sends her back. Um, so he enters the bedroom that night with Zach, and he stands over him, um, remember, ready to slice his throat. Um, This is 51, so it's somewhere 50-51, it's the paragraph that says he was waiting for daylight. He could not have said why, Um, go down. Then he found the eyes of the face on the pillow, looking quietly up. Remember, he sneaks into the bedroom now, now he's over, Zach, And he knew then why he had to wait until daylight. Because you are a mccaslin too, he said. Even if you was a woman made to it, maybe that's the reason, maybe that's why you've done it because what you and your paw got from old Carruthers had to come to you through a woman, a critter not responsible like men are responsible, not to be held like men are held, so maybe I've already forgive you except I can't forgive you, because you can forgive only them that injure you. Even the book itself, don't ask a man to forgive them, he's fixing to harm, because even Jesus found out at last that too was much too much to ask a man, put the razor down and I will I will walk to you, he said. Huh? Talk to you. Oh, sorry, talk. You know I wasn't afraid because you know I was a McCaslin too and a man made one. Over and over again, he keeps asserting his man. He's got to do this. Imagine the, a man being in this position. Go down. You never gave me the chance to do what old Carruthers would have told me to do. You tried to beat me and you won't never. Not even when I'm hanging dead for the limb this time tomorrow. With the coal oil still burning, you won't ever put down the razor, Lucas, Edmund said. What razor, Lucas said. He raised his hand and looked at the razor as if it did not know he had it and never seen it before, and in the same motion flung it towards the open window. I don't need no razor. My naked hands will do. Now get the pistol under your pillow. You know what happens. um, Over the next page, 53, in the middle of that paragraph, um, he says... Um, He went to the wall and stood with his back against it, still facing the bed. Because I done already beat you, he said. It's old Carruthers. He feels, because old Carruthers in his mind was tough enough to take possession of the land and control it. The ruthless toughness to get this done. So he identifies with that toughness, that nobody's going to beat him. He will be equal to the task here. Because I done already beat you, he said. It's old Carruthers. Get your pistol, white man. He stood panting in the rapid inhalations until it seemed that his lungs could not possibly hold more of it. Um, go on over. Um, Lucas said, You on one side, me on the other. Or, or, exact, the white man said, We'll kneel down and grip hands. We won't need to count. No, Lucas said in a strangling voice. For the last time, take your pistol. I'm coming. Come on then, do you think I'm any less of a chasm just because I was what you call woman made to it? Or maybe you ain't even a woman made machasm but just a nigger that's got out of hand? Now it's pride against pride. I mean, Roth can't, I mean, Zach can't back off without embarrassing himself as a man because Lucas has put it all to him. So, I mean, this is sort of amazing. Two proud men, we're back in the Iliad. for the last time, Lucas said, I tell you. Then he cried, and not to the white man, and the white man knew it. He saw the whites of the Negro's eyes rush suddenly with red like the red eyes of a bait animal, a bear, a fox. I tell you, don't ask too much of me. I was wrong, the white man thought. I have gone too far, but it was too late. Um, you remember what happens. They go for the gun in the next page. You know that I could beat you, so you thought to beat me with old Carruthers, like Cass Edmonds done Isaac. Used old Carruthers to make Isaac give up the land that was his because Cass Edmund was the woman-made McCaslin, the woman branch, the sister. And old Carruthers would have told Isaac to give in to the woman kin that couldn't. He thinks Isaac was cheated out of it. He doesn't understand. We'll learn that. I mean, that's really interesting. He just misperceives this. I gave it up for other reasons. I will learn to see what they are. You thought I'd do it quick, quicker than Isaac, since I ain't any land I would give up. I ain't got any fine big Maccasm farm to give up. All I got to give up is Macasm blood that rightfully ain't even mine. Go down. The white man sprang, hurling himself against the bed, grasping at the pistol and the hand which held it. Lucas sprang too. They met over the center of the bed, where Lucas clasped the other with his left arm and almost like an embrace and jammed the pistol against the white man's side and pulled the trigger and flung the white man from him all in one motion, hearing as he did so the light, dry, incredibly loud click of the misfire. And notice the switch. That had been a good year. Now, um, going over the next page, um, um, Molly is bringing food out to Lucas. It's a, it's a recollection of... Um, the reconciliation that takes place after all this happened now. Um, Women, he thought, women, I will not never know, I don't want to, I'd rather never know than to find out later I've been fooled. He turned towards the room where the fire was, where his supper waited. This time he spoke aloud, how to God, he said, can a black man ask a white man to please not lay down with his black wife? And even if he could ask, how to God can the white man promise he won't? There are a number of things here. One is the sexual relationship. And remember, the title of the story is The Fire and the Heart. The Heart has always been, the hearth has always been from the time of Homer, the symbol of unity in, um, of a home, of a marriage. Remember that we learned in Pantaloons in Black that um, the writer knows that on that first night that Lucas and Molly married, Lucas built a fire, and that fire was kept alive every day of their lives. So the fire and hearth is the symbol of a, of a communal love of a family that holds together. And we have to keep that image in mind and set off against it the violence of these things. So, so, you've got on the one hand the, the, the central importance of the family and the community, but you saw, you've also got these sins of miscegenation old Carruthers mating with a slave woman, and the blacks and whites both carrying those sins forward and the, the weight that they place on them, the past. So, um, we, we see that the, the past is a heavy burden. Again, we've been seeing that from the beginning. Here it is, here. Um, Lucas can't escape it. Zach Roth can't escape it. Um, and the other, um, the other thing is this element of time. Um, ch- section three begins on page 58 or 57. George Wilkin, Edmund said, he came to the edge of the gallery. So what we know is in the period of that two minutes, right? Lucas comes to the porch, says George Wilkins, and then. Edmund says, George Wilkins, he's going to inform him. We get this flashback. So it's out of sequence. It takes us back 45 years, whatever that time period is. Um, but it, it intrudes because, in a sense, it helps define the relationships between these people. And I hope that's clear. It, it deepens our sense of what's actually going on. Because on the surface, all you see is two men saying hello. George Wilkins. But what we realize is that they're both carrying a much greater world than is visible to our senses. So Faulkner's making us aware that, remember we're in the Cape, we can't always trust appearances. So in this casual exchange, there's far more going on than we know. And in that sense, we know that's true for all of us as human beings, and virtually so much of what goes on in our life. Now let me let me because I want to I want to try to leave some time here if I can turn back to page one or over to one oh six. In the last section, remember in the third chapter, Molly comes to ask for a divorce. Um, on page ninety eight ninety nine, she says she wants a divorce. Um, remember. Um, and she expresses his fear and Roth doesn't understand what she can be afraid of. It's that passage, this, or the paragraph that begins, that would, be the, that would be just as bad, she said, I got to get clean away. Do you all have that? What page? that's 98. 90, yeah. oh, 90 98 for me too? To no. That would be just as bad, she said, I got to get clean away because he's crazy. Ever since he got that machine, he done went crazy. Him and Even though he had just spoken it, he realized that she couldn't even think of George's name. She spoke again, immobile, looking at nothing as far as he could tell. Her hands like two cramped ink splashes on the lap of the immaculate apron. Stays out all night, long every night with it, hunting that buried money. He don't even take care of his own stock right no more. I feel the mare and the hogs and milks tries to, but that's all right, I can do that. I'm glad to do that when he's sick. She's so committed in her marriage, she's willing to sacrifice that. But he's sick in the mind now, bad sick. He don't even get up to go to church on Sunday no more. He's bad sick, master. He's doing a thing the Lord ain't meant for folks to do. And I'm afraid, afraid of what she says. Because God say, what's rendered to my earth, it belongs to me unto I resurrect it. And let him or her touch it and beware and I'm afraid I got to go, I got to be free. That could stand as a sort of um, tableau statement for the book. Um, What's rendered to my earth, it belongs to me until I resurrect. The danger of humans on this earth is to take what God made and use it for their own ends, as if God didn't make it. So remember that because there's that basic, remember we've talked about the north and south, What's at issue in every one of these stories is this fundamental relationship to the earth that defines southern man, but one of the effects of it as it plays out in people's lives. Going over now to 106. Um, um, The narrator recalls that episode where Ike takes Lucas to the bank because Lucas wants to get his money out to show he's free, that he's equal to the white man. He gets the money from the teller and looks at it and and confirms that it's his <laughs> and then puts it back because um, he just wanted... It was a signal gesture as a way of showing that it was his, that he didn't depend on the white man to handle. Um, and then we get this next flashback. This, is, this takes us back to that time when both Um, Roth and Henry um, were children being raised by Molly and virtually Lucas, and and they were wonderful friends growing up. They were the two boys playing together all the time. They slept together, they had meals together, they played together, but then a day comes when that changes, and it changes in the direction of that old curse. On page 106, but he didn't leave within the year he married not a country woman, a farm woman, but a town woman in McCaslin and built a house for them, that's Cass, and allowed Lucas's speci- specific acreage to be farmed as he, fa- as he saw fit as long as he lived or remained on the place. So, he's not a slave. He can live there or go. He's got enough money to go. He does not want to leave. This is his inheritance. This is his past. He's not going to leave it. Then McCaslin Edmonds died and his son married and on that spring night of flood and isolation the boy Carruthers was born. Still in infancy he had already accepted the black man as an adjunct to the woman who was the only mother he would remember as simply as he accepted his black foster brother, as simply as he accepted his father as an adjunct to his existence. Even before he was out of infancy the two houses had become interchangeable, himself and the foster brother sleeping on the same pallet in the white man's house, or in the same bed, and the Negroes eating of the same food at the same table in either, actually preferring the Negro house, the hearth on which, even in summer, a little fire always burned, centering the life in it to his own." That's symbolically a symbol of the unity in his own life, the, the family in the Negro home. He did not even need to come to him as a part of his family's chronicle that his white father and his foster brother's black one had done the same. It never even occurred to him that they in their turn and simultaneously had not had the first of remembering projected upon a single woman whose skin was likewise dark. Only one day he knew without wondering or remembering when or how he'd learned that either that the black woman was not his mother and did not regret it. He knew that his own mother was dead and did not grieve. There was still the black woman. And he comes to some point where he realizes there's something between the men. He doesn't know, we do, because we've had a description of that night, And we know, as a matter of fact, that for all intents and purposes, um, Lucas killed um, Zach. The gun misfired, you know but if it hadn't been misfired, Jack would have been there, and as he said, he would have been lynched the next day with oil under him. Then one day the old curse of his fathers, the old haughty ancestral pride based not on any value but on an accident of geography, stemmed not from courage and honor but from wrong and shame descended to him. He did not recognize it then. He and his foster brother, Henry, were seven years old they had just finished supper at Henry's house and Molly was just sending them to bed in the room across the hall where they slept when they were there when suddenly he said, I'm going home. Let's stay here, Henry said. I thought I was going to get up and Papa did and go hunting. You can, he said. He was already moving towards the door. I'm going home. Alright, Henry said. Remember he follows him because just they're friends, that's what he does. Um, they go to the bedroom um, how he undressed just slow enough for Henry to beat him to the pallet and lie down. Then he went to the bed and lay down on it, rigid, staring up into the dark ceiling, ever after he heard Henry raise onto one elbow, looking towards the bed with slow and equable astonishment. Are you going to sleep up there? Henry said. Well, all right, this here pallet sleeps all right too. That's the first time. Of it. And think about the elevation, how that puts him above him, because they've always been together. This equals. Are you going to sleep up there, Henry said. Well, all right, this here pallet sleeps all right to me, but I reckon I just as lief if you wants to. And rose and approached the bed and stood over the white boy waiting for him to move over and make room until the boy said, harsh and violent, though not loud, no. Henry didn't move. You mean you don't want me to sleep in the bed? Or did the boy move? He didn't answer, rigid on his back, staring upward. All right, Henry said quietly. And went back to the pallet and laid down again. The boy heard him, listened to him, he couldn't help it, lying clenched and rigid and open-eyed, hearing the slow, equable voice, I reckon on a hot night like tonight we will sleep cooler if we... Shut up, the boy said. How am I or you neither going to sleep if you keep on talking? Henry hushed then, but the boy didn't sleep. Long after Henley's quiet and untroubled breathing had begun, Lying in a rigid fury of the grief he could not explain, the shame he would not admit. Then he slept. The, the, I mean, I can't read this. I mean, a couple weeks ago when I read this. I just The sadness that overcame me. He can't stop himself. God, he can't say no. This is the inherited sin. Everything in him goes to that. He cannot say no to it. Go down. He went to Molly's. It was already late afternoon. Henry and Lucas would be coming up from the field at any time now. So, as much as he's done that, he's something in him wants to recover what he's just lost um, with his friend. So he goes to the home expecting to have a meal with them, to eat together. Henry and Lucas would be coming up from the field at any time now. Molly, now imagine this. By the way, this is the Roth that we know, right? In our time, because remember Roth Edmonds is the owner of the plant in our time. So the man that we're seeing who greeted Lucas at the porch, this is the boy. This is what produced the man who's the owner who just oversees things. We're, we cannot forget that here. Henry Lucas would be coming up from the field at any time. Now Molly was there looking at him from the kitchen door as he crossed the yard. There was nothing in her face, he said, it as best he could for all that moment because later he would be able to say it all right, say it once and forever, so that it would be gone forever, facing her before he entered her house, yet stopping, his feet slightly apart, trembling a little, loudly, preemptory. I'm going to eat supper with you tonight. It's preemptory. It's It's a commit. He's the son of the white. And he's seven. Before he was a child, an infant, he didn't know. Now he's coming to awareness. (coughs) And this is what form it takes. It was all right. There was nothing in her face. He could say it almost any time now when the time came. course you, is. she said, I'll cook you a chicken. Then it was as if he had never, then it was as if it never happened at all. Henry came in almost at once. He must have seen him from the field and he and Henry killed and dressed the chicken. That's what they do. And Lucas came in and went to the barn with Henry and Lucas while Henry milked. Then they were busy in the yard in the dust smelling the cooking chicken until Molly called Henry and then a little later himself The voice is that it had always been peaceful and steadfast. Come and eat your supper. That's Molly. Remember, this is 45 years earlier. Remember, right now she wants a divorce, but this is Molly. Cooking, feeding. She helped raise the kids, and she knows exactly what's going on. Um, But it was too late. The table was set in the kitchen where it always was, and Molly stood at the stove, drawing the biscuit out. She always stood, but Lucas was not there, and there was just one chair, one plate, his glass of milk beside it, the platter heaped with untouched chicken, and even as he sprang back, gasping for an instant blind as the room rushed and swam, Henry was turning towards the door to go out of it. Are you ashamed to eat when I eat, he cried? Henry paused, turning his head a little to speak in a voice slow and without heat. I ain't ashamed of nobody, he said peacefully, not even me. So he entered his heritage, he ate his bitter fruit, he listened and Lucas <coughs> referred to his father as Mr. Edmunds, never as Mr. Zach. He watched him avoid it. It goes on. I just, I want to stop here, because um, you you all have read it. Um, let me just take a, a minute for a couple of questions, but I just I want to go back to that original. <coughs> um, do we find Christ? I don't, I, don't, I don't want to go there. I just want to raise, do we find Christ in anybody, any person? Do we find Christ in anything going on with the writing of the story in what's being presented in the story and I don't want to answer that, I just want to keep that but any questions about what we're reading or some of these important, the land marriages and the misogyny and how important the genealogy is and the past and inheritance and Faulkner doing so much there's not another writer in the modern world truly, not another writer who's who's done as much as he has any questions? How are you guys finding this? Sad. Sa- it is. It is sad. It is sad. I got so sad at one point, I quit reading it. <laughs> I, can, I can imagine that, Marcy. It's, it's, it is sad. What a wonderful testimony to Faulkner, I mean, that he can be, that he can show something. Huh? Mm-hmm. He can move you to sadness. So yeah. That's a great yeah, 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 he can move us to joy too. Um, I, I'm going to next time we meet. I want to. I'm going to make some comments about some positions he was put on. Next time when we begin, people turned on him in both sides. The whites turned on him. The blacks turned on him. The government turned on him. The the segregationists turned on him. The integrationists turned on him. I'll tell you why when we get. But. Um, he got it from every. He got it from every side, yeah. ex- except for the people who read him well. Um, but the blacks are very intelligent. Yeah. Why do you say that? What do you think? Well, of? because they're smart, but they keep it. They know they can't exploit us. They can't show it off. Yeah. But they're sometimes much smarter than the white. Oh people. yeah, for sure. Oh, I for sure. Know. It's interesting. Yeah, it is. Shakespeare would agree with that. If you look at Shakespeare's plays, it's usually the, the underclass who can always outclass the aristocrats. The aristocrats look stupid. If you read Falstaff, Falstaff can get around the... The aristocrats look stupid because they take their wealth and their class for granted. And the people who don't take it for granted develop a sharpness to them. It's historically always been true. Yep. Wealth spoils. Perhaps. Well, I, you know, I, remember, I remember back in the summer I, I came to Dallas for an inter for a job, there, and they went to uh, see my sister in Mississippi, which she, she was at a, a, a base and air base outside of Biloxi. Married to a guy, and that bus ride was my first exposure really to, to, I guess, the black situation. You know, with the bus segregated.